Will you join me in our Shed Bibles to page 932? The passage we're going to read today is from Mark 9, 14 through 19. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Mars Hill. If we've not had a chance to meet, my name is Ashley. I'm one of our co-lead pastors here. And we missed you last week. Uh, Mars Hill Grand Rapids joined Unison Church on the southeast side last Sunday morning. And we were thrilled to engage with brothers and sisters um, at a different church community, but as one church as the body of Christ. Um, I will tell you one thing, though. My driving skills were put to the test because if you remember, we had a lot of snow last weekend. And I, I must say, there are two types of people, at least in my family. There are good drivers, and then there are better drivers. And I pride myself on being one of the better drivers. I've been driving in Houston, in LA. They say if you can drive in LA, you can drive anywhere. Is someone here from L.A.? Hey, welcome. Welcome. Glad you're joining us. But the 405, am I right? It's atrocious. So if you can drive on the West Coast, you can drive anywhere. We've driven in Chicago. But in this particular moment, the kids are in the car. The Highlander is parked by the side of the house. And I tell you, I cannot for the life of me, despite my training and experience, get this car out of that snow. And so I start shoveling, and I shovel some more. And eventually I get ourselves out, but then we're in a similar situation again the next day before school. And the car is stuck, and I can't get the car out. And so I'm just flooring it. Deb's like, no, Ashley, no. (laughs) Michiganders don't floor it. Um, And I realize I need help. And it's at that moment where my husband, still in his jams, comes outside into the blistering cold. And he says, get out of the car. I'll do it for you. And he got me out, but, but I was so frustrated because I pride myself on being a really good driver. I pride myself being on uh, Beyonce's brand of independent woman. And I can't get a car out of, out of snow. At 
times, despite our best efforts, Marcel, we fail. And this isn't even necessarily sin. This is the kind of failure you come upon when you think you've done what you're supposed to do. You surrendered your old habits. You started hanging with the right crowd. You do your due diligence and you, you come to church or you watch online. And that relationship you've been working so hard to repair somehow is even more strained. You can't seem to shake the depression. The team at work under your leadership isn't as Ted Lasso as you'd like it to be. And perhaps you too have felt the underlying frustration when the doubt creeped in, when shame takes hold of you, and you too have asked Jesus, why isn't this working? Why isn't this working? It's in these times that we fail and we must consider how that failure impacts our faith. How does Jesus encounter us in those moments, in those seasons? Well, in this text that Lynn read for us this morning, the disciples have come face to face with their own ineffectiveness. They have failed. They failed. To set the scene, in the chapter immediately prior to this one, we see something completely different happening. Three of the disciples are with Jesus. He'd taken them up to a high mountain. They'd had an intimate and yet frightening mountaintop experience. I mean, stuff was happening up there. Jesus was bleached, bedazzled white. There were appearances from the prophets. And Moses, it was an encounter that we might call a spiritually significant moment. Many of us know what that's like, don't we? Times in our faith walk where there were obvious times where we felt Jesus was present with us, where we felt like we understood that the Holy Spirit was in our midst so tangibly. And it's from that mountaintop experience that Jesus, Peter, James, and John come to the current situation. If the transfiguration was the first Friday of your dream vacation, the scene we find ourselves in now is the first Monday back at work. The crowd is large. The people are ordinary. Tensions are rising, and I imagine it's loud, as we're told that the disciples are in an argument with the teachers of the law. They're no longer on the mountaintop. And so the first comfort I receive from this text is the assurance that Jesus doesn't just meet people in meaningful mountaintop experiences. He meets them in the mess, too. That's good news for some of us this morning. So it comes to Jesus' attention that there was an ask made of Jesus' other nine disciples that the disciples could not meet. 
A father had brought his son to them, a son who we're told was possessed by a spirit. And the way the spirit manifested itself in the boy's body was that it robbed him of speech, threw him into seizures, caused him to foam at the mouth, to gnash his teeth and become rigid. Let me pause here and say that the rest of our time together in this text is not a deep dive into debating the presence of demons in our current context or how they might manifest themselves today in 2023. What I will offer two reminders. The first is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What does Paul remind us in Ephesians 6? He, he tells us that this struggle is against rulers, authorities, and the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I wonder if in our formation we've become more familiar in the verses that come immediately after that more familiar in vacation Bible school with the armor of God and less familiar with what we're fighting against. So I remind us this morning, spiritual evil forces exist. And particularly in the first century, exorcisms were fairly common. Jesus himself references the Pharisees casting out demons in Matthew 12. The Pharisees were casting out demons. In Acts, they're tales of the sons of Sceva casting out demons. And later on in this very chapter, the disciples tell Jesus they saw someone, we don't know who, casting out demons, but not in his name. So this was common practice. We have to understand this was, this was not a special case scenario. Secondly, what I want to say about the demonic is that it's true that the acknowledgement of spiritual forces can be and has been weaponized in the church. Not every physical ailment or difference in the ways our bodies struggle is a result of a spiritual force of evil. And yet I acknowledge that the church oftentimes may have even used this passage to point to reasons why people struggle in their bodies. So there's a discernment that at some point we need to enter into about how those spiritual forces manifest and show up. And yet we should be careful not to weaponize them in this case, the disciples couldn't drive this demon out. Literally, the text translates that phrase as they were not strong enough to do it. And now there's an argument that's ensued. Imagine the teachers of the law witnessing that Jesus' disciples were not effective in doing the very thing that they proclaim Jesus had given them authority to do. There's a crowd that's gathered because the expectation is that the disciples might be able to actually cast the demon out of this boy. And yet Jesus isn't there. All the 12 aren't there. This is gold for the teachers of the law. A perfect opportunity for them to say, see, we told you. We told you this was blasphemous. We told you this wasn't real. Prove it. Prove that you're actually followers of this, this Jesus who's powerful. And I imagine in a culture 
where shame and honor are so important here. The disciples in the, in the wake of them not being able to heal this boy are likely feeling what you and I might feel, shame, embarrassment. And perhaps from that place, they step to the teachers of the law to try to explain away what they cannot act. To try and prove that no, we really are Jesus' disciples. No, he is the one. I imagine the shame that's, that's rising up in them. Trying to save face. But why? Why couldn't they do it? We'll talk about how Jesus comes back to their failure in a moment. But there is another account in the Gospels where Jesus was brought a demon-possessed man, and the Pharisees challenged the authority by which Jesus was able to do so. And Matthew writes, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, in this time, exorcisms were more normalized, and exorcists' methods varied greatly. And normally, they were focused on the power of the exorcist himself, or more precisely, their ability to manipulate other powers. And so part of me wonders if in Jesus' absence, the remaining nine disciples had shifted somehow from reliance on the Spirit of God, to operating within their own strength. This might explain why Jesus called them faithless, why they might have taken a posture of defense. As Mike Cosper writes in his book, if we have no confidence that God is going to show up in the practices that have formed and united the church, then we have one mandate, make something happen. Make something happen. Do it on your own. Make it happen yourself. Mars Hill, in spite of our own ineffectiveness or failures, whether individually or collectively, the failures of the American church, how might we as the beloved community check the spirit by which we act in Jesus' name? Are we acting and operating out of the power of the Holy Spirit or in the absence of immediate satisfaction, satisfaction or seeing for ourselves results that we hope for? Are we acting out of our own power? We don't have time to comb through every verse of this text, but there are three interactions here that I'd like to examine. And they all tell me that Jesus really cares about not just what gets accomplished in his kingdom, but the spirit by which it happens, the how. First, I want to point out that Jesus acknowledges the failure. I find it so interesting that Jesus doesn't just get right to healing the boy. This father brings his son to Jesus, and he doesn't just say, hey, you're healed. There's something that he proclaims before that 
Upon hearing that his disciples weren't able to cast out the demon, he bemoans who he calls, oh, faithless generation. And he is addressing not the teachers of the law, parenthetically. He doesn't address them here at all. He's not addressing the teachers of the law, but the disciples. And this is a reference back to the text, to Psalm 95, verse 10, where the psalmist says, for 40 years I, God, loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. For some of us who were taught that Jesus was just our homeboy in the 90s, this might be kind of a surprising reaction coming from Jesus. Maybe we don't like this reaction. Maybe we wish he were talking to the teachers of the law, those who were opposing him. We'd rather think of Jesus as a neutral enabling friend whose presence is with us and who just kind of thinks neutrally about what we do. But here we see that Jesus really cared about what the disciples couldn't accomplish. We have to understand contextually there are two things happening with Jesus right now. First, Jesus knows he's at the end of his life here on earth. At the end of chapter 8, right before this section, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Hello, teachers of the law. And be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. He was coming to the end. Time is running out. There's an urgency about him, which would explain why he would follow that address to his disciples with, how long am I going to be with you? How long must I stay with you? We've been together. Time is running out. And I want you to get this. But second, it's important to remember the disciples, as we've said, have already done this. They're not new to this. Back in chapter 6, Jesus had given them that authority. He called the 12, the text says, and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And fast forward to verse 13 in chapter 6, and they cast out many, many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So imagine Jesus witnessing that his disciples have failed to heal this boy and seeing this gap between what they were doing and how perhaps they were trying to do it. And as I consider the why behind Jesus' public acknowledgement of that failure, there's someone else who comes from the crowd. Someone else that we have to take into consideration. There is a desperate father and his son on the other side of the disciples' ineffectiveness. Church, there are some of us who've, let, who've been let down by Jesus' own disciples. Disciples who were your youth group leaders, mentors, Maybe people in your own family, a boss at work, a pastor. There are some of us who walked in this morning holding wounds 
from Jesus' very own disciples. And perhaps you need to hear today that Jesus cares. Jesus cares about the ways his disciples have failed those who've come to them. I see that here, that he didn't just skirt over their failure. It meant something to him. It means something to Jesus that you've been let down by the very people who you trusted as his followers. And as a Jesus people, we must be willing to publicly acknowledge the ways either we ourselves have been ineffective or where we've witnessed ineffective ministry in Jesus' name, not because we're asked to heap some sort of shame over our heads, but because those who've been caught in the wake of Jesus' disciples' failures need to be reminded that they matter to Jesus. That acknowledgement of what really happened might be one way that we help collectively take part in the work of repair within the body. It's why I love that confession and assurance have become a regular part of our communal liturgy. Because if we come to those practices week in and week out, we might one day have the courage to collectively say to those who we've marginalized or not invited in to encounter Jesus, to say, I'm sorry, we confess our sin too. Might we take a page out of Jesus's book and name publicly the infraction, the ineffectiveness that's occurred. Now, if you're one who's identifying mightily with the disciples right now as the insufficient one, hold on. There's news coming for you. I'll let you decide if it's good or not. Second, Jesus asks about the need here. He doesn't assume to know the Father's desire. And so he asks a question. How long has this been happening to him? How long has this been going on? I wonder if as a Jesus people, we need to get really good at asking this question. How long has it been? How long has it been for those who've been suffering in our midst? How long has it been for those whose experiences we've judged, but not taken an opportunity to actually know? Are we good at asking this question? The ways we engage other stories matter. And though Jesus likely didn't have to ask, he chose to anyway. I love in Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, he talks about the ecclesial repair that needs to take place in our own American context. And specifically, he's talking about the sin of racism and the ways that the church has perpetuated that sin in its past. But then he says, he broadens the scope, and he says the entire church can learn from believers who have suffered, yet still hold on to God's unchanging hand. There is something for us to potentially learn from those who have suffered, even in our own midst, but we must be willing to ask the question, make it part of our practice, how long has it been? Would you tell me? Would you fill me in? 
Would you be willing to share your story? I also realize that some of us need to allow ourselves to answer that question as if Jesus is asking us. So I ask you this morning, church, do you need to hear Jesus asking you, how long has it been? How, how long has that person been mistreating you? How long has the depression been unmanageable? How long have you been suffering silently in new mother or fatherhood? How long have you been plagued by loneliness? How long have you been covering your marital fracture? Jesus wants to know. I'm thinking through, um, we had a prayer gathering right after um, Patrick Leoya was killed. And we held this at East Congregational Church, and a group of our pastors showed up and led through that in partnership with ECC. And there's a meaningful moment that happened there that I'll never forget. I had gone through an entire box of tissues. An entire box. I was burying myself quite vulnerably moved by the pain that our community was experiencing, but also moved by a group of brothers and sisters coming together to hold and lament that together. And so I had accumulated this, this box. And then one of your leaders here at this church came to me, put out their hands and said, give them to me. And I said, ew. No, that's gross. And they insisted, no, give them to me. I can't quite explain what happened in that moment, but there was something about handing over the representation of what had been accumulated over my entire life, pain and, and misunderstanding and wrestling with how we're still so broken as a society, even though we've supposedly come so far. Something about the representation of handing that mound of tissues over to someone that was willing to hold it with me, that was powerful beyond belief. He wanted to know. Jesus wants to know. And he wants to hold the messed up, yucky ew in your life. And perhaps that representation is here within this body. Perhaps we could be that for you. So in the process of the father explaining his son's situation, the impact of the disciples' failure finally shows up. The father says, but if... If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Here it is. It's not just that the disciples weren't strong enough to cast out the demon. It's that the father's faith was so shaken to the point that he's face to face a man he calls with a man he calls teacher in the text. He is face to face with Jesus himself with an if. 
There are many amongst us longing to bring ifs to Jesus on the other side of the failure of the body of Christ. And we get to decide if their ifs are welcome here. Maybe the one with the if is you. Perhaps you're like the father in that you're willing to tell Jesus how long it's been, but the if looms large, even in the presence of Jesus himself. Jesus says to this man, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Amen. Yeah, amen. And it says immediately the father said, I believe, but he didn't just say, I believe. That wasn't it. It's as if he were still letting Jesus in. He lets Jesus in even more, but not into his son's story, but now into his own. And in a vulnerable admission, the man says, I believe help. I believe help my unbelief. Maybe the pressure isn't on you with your big if brought to Jesus to be forced to say, I believe immediately. Maybe you start at help. Maybe you say, Jesus, I know it's you. I call you teacher, but what, would you help me in my unbelief? Jesus, it's you. Help. I believe. Help the parts of me that don't yet believe enough. Help the parts of me that are still skeptical. Help the parts of me that haven't fully surrendered what's possible over to you. So as I look at this text and I think about this Jesus and series and what it's calling us to, I wonder, are we willing to name where we've been ineffective? Are we willing to call out the ineffectiveness of the church? Are we willing to bear witness to how long those amongst us have been suffering? Finally, I said there were three parts to this. I, I mentioned that if you are one today who is squirming in your seat because you, like me, identify with the disciples in this text, the news for us is that Jesus' power is not held hostage by his disciples' failure. Jesus goes on to rebuke the unclean spirit and takes the boy by the hand to lift him up, restoring not just his body, but his dignity. He restores him to his family, into relationship with his community. I feel like I'm preaching the first Jesus damn thing again with the lady who touched the hem of his garment. It's the same thing here. He restores him. He restores him. Church, our effectiveness is not the good news. Jesus is the good news. This also means that our ineffectiveness isn't powerful enough to overwhelm Jesus' power. The demon was cast. The boy was healed. And not just that, but this passage ends with Jesus in his infinite patience continuing to teach them in private. He didn't say you messed up, you gotta go. 
I don't know why I'm thinking of expo. We have expo markers in one of our conference rooms upstairs that just don't work. And you know what we do? We throw them out of the room. Jesus doesn't do that to us. Thanks be to God. He doesn't say, you've run out, I cast you out. He says, no, you didn't get this one right. Let me teach you the spirit by which I want you to walk forward into my name. I do not want you to use your own power or strength. I do not want you to make things happen with bells and whistles in my church. Would you rely on the Holy Spirit that I have given you, the authority that I have placed within you, and with a life of prayer, and for some of us, fasting, would you enter into the things of my kingdom in that spirit. Leave the arguments alone. Enter in. I'm just glad that he doesn't cast me out for all the ways I failed him. We're coming upon Lent, a season where we face the hard, long walk to the cross, where we recognize the limitations of our own flesh, where we pray, where we lament. And I wonder, church, if we take seriously not the arguments that the world invites us into, but the life of prayer that Jesus said, only certain principles and and principalities of darkness can be cast out through prayer. There are only certain things that will happen if we live if we live a life of prayer. Would we give ourselves to being a people who pray and by the Holy Spirit's grace say yes to God's kingdom work? As we come to the table, we bring our ineffectiveness. We bring our failure. We bring our ifs. We bring all that lives within us. We bring our why can't I do this questions. We bring it all, and it is made whole by Jesus' broken body and his blood. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you pray with me, the spirit of thanksgiving? How right and a good and joyful thing at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fall upon these elements and in all the broken places, the places where we in our own strength have tried to be about the things of your kingdom, Lord, would you nourish and heal us? Would you remind us that you are the one? Would you remind us of your power, of your authority? Fill us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.
And so every week we remember this story that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so those of us, the ineffective, those who have failed and been failed, we join our voices to proclaim the great, beautiful mystery of our faith, not just with this body here, for those of you gathered online, but for all our brothers and sisters, all the beloved across the world who profess themselves as followers of Christ and of this great story. We recite it together saying, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So now we feast together, friends. The table has been prepared. If you're new here, we have elements, gluten-free, all of them in the aisles, and those are prayer walls behind them. We also have our prayer team available to pray with you in the back of the room. Might you might you invite us into holding how long it's been for you through prayer. Whether through the walls or at staff prays every Tuesday or in the back of the room with someone who wants to hold that with you. The space is yours. May you encounter the Holy Spirit who is amongst us. Receive who you are, the body of Christ. <laughs>